Hello, photographers, creatives, and everyone else listening, and welcome to the second episode of the Dan Kennedy Podcast, hosted by me, Dan Kennedy. This episode of the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome photographer and director Mitch Jenkins. Mitch's epic career has spanned shooting for local newspapers, traveling the world shooting for the best editorials, and now to directing his first feature film. He's built a close working relationship with English comic book writer Alan Moore of the Watchman fame. I've been drawn to Mitch's work for years. I first spotted his iconic images on the poster campaign for the US TV series Lost. In this episode, we discuss how he shot these amazing portraits using constant light and a 5.4 film camera, through to talking digital, what it's like to have a great agent, and how meticulously he plans every detail of his shoots. Mitch is someone I've been really keen to interview for a long time now, so I'm delighted I've finally tracked him down. I hope you enjoy this broad-ranging episode with Mitch Jenkins. Okay, Mitch, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. Great. It's great to be here too in, in Northampton, driving up the, uh, the M1 in uh, 35 degrees. <laughs> it's be. always sunny in Northampton. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I'd like to start um, uh, with uh, the time that you left school, really. Um, I know you went to work for the local newspaper as a darkroom printer. Um, and in within months, you know, you'd become a junior photographer and your sort of career took off from there. So can you just talk a little bit about that? You know, how did you get your break at that point, really? Well, it was after getting kicked out of sixth form. Um, I discovered the darkroom um, at the age of 16 at the school. Um, and within just over, well, over a year, just over a year, that actually said, you're not going to pass your A-levels. We think it's time for you to move on and actually get a job in photography. Um, a friend of mine found an advert in the local paper, the Chronicle, for a darkroom assistant, got the job, um, which was wonderful. And um, from that point on, I was just exposed to nine other photographers who were just doing up to 10 jobs a day. And I would go out every afternoon with them and every evening and every weekend, take pictures over their shoulders, just see if I could get as good as they were. And then it got to a point within a few months that they were using my pictures as opposed to the other photographers. So that was kind of my start. They then gave me a job. And then a guy called Dominic Chapman was doing the local music column on the paper. And we were very fortunate that Bear House was our local band. And they were like, at the time, you know, the hippest band around. There was a job on the diary to go and photograph Bear House. I popped down with another photographer. We shot them. And um, within a day, their manager had come back, wanted to buy my photograph for their gatefold of their album cover. And then from there, I met the Jazz Butcher, another local artist. He asked me to shoot his album cover, then to do his pop video. And then Bear House became Love and Rockets when they split with Pete Murphy. Asked me to shoot their pop videos. And I was 21. I'm doing all of this. Um, And then from that point, um, I then got a phone call one lunchtime from Q Magazine. It was their issue one. And uh, they rang up and they said, can anyone go and photograph this local comic book artist called Alan Moore? So I said, I'll go and do it. It was 100 quid. Popped around, knocked on his door. He was stoned as usual. (laughs) And um, introduced myself, got on really well, did the photograph. Q Magazine loved it. That was then my introduction to the music scene with Alan and Bauhaus, Love and Rockets. And I was doing all of these different pictures, hanging out with Sisters of Mercy, hanging out with um, Fields of the Nephilim, shooting all of their stuff. And then it got to the point that I was thinking, hold on, I'm shooting all these pop videos, all these album covers, doing all of this stuff. And I'm still doing golden weddings and local football teams. (laughs) So I popped around to see Alan and I said, look, mate, I said, 
my sort of freelance world's rocking, but, you know, working-class boy as I am, mum says, don't give up your day job. And he just said, Mitch, he goes, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Give up the day job and do it. That's how it started. So became freelance. Um, and then from there, I got in with the Saturday Times magazine. And then that was it. That was the start. That was the start. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you say, um, you, say uh, you, you took some pictures of Bauhaus and then you ended up recording their videos, age 21. I mean, what, that must have been a massive learning curve. Um, you know, what were you what were you filming their videos on? How did you even know how to use a video camera? What did a video camera look like when you were doing Well, we weren't, we weren't shooting video per se. We were shooting on 16mm Bolex. Right. So everything was on Bolex um, and or 8mm. Um, and it was wow. a wind-up Bolex with a three turret, so you change the lens, and off you go. And if you're doing slow motion, you've got maybe about 15 seconds before the clockwork's wound down. Um do you know, at 21, you don't give a damn. No. You, you really, really don't. And you just put your hand up and you say, I can do it. And I remember I'd shot this video for Love and Rockets and Beggar's Banquet. They had Fields of the Nephilim on their label. And they came to me and they said, Mitch, could you do a live concert video? I said, well, of course I could do a live concert video. I mean, how difficult can it possibly be? So they said, okay, you've got the gig. So we went down to Bricksworth, not Bricksworth, Brixton Academy, and uh, Bricksworth being local. Um, so Brixton Academy, the Manor Mobile, so Rolling Stones Mobile Studio turned up to record it. I'm thinking, okay, this is a bit, a bit professional. Um, and I'd got a local video company from Northampton to do the field camera work. So we got five cameras set up. And I remember I'm in my control booth. I've got my headphone on, band starts. And it's like, camera one, find me a shot, onto camera two. And after about 15 seconds, it's fucking hell, number three, someone get me something. And you're just losing it. But, you know, about two minutes in, you've got the flow. Everyone knows what they're doing. And then I then went to the subsequent other gigs they had, shot loads of stuff, slow motion, black and white, colour 16 mil, grainy stuff, all on the old Bolex. And then all the cock-ups I'd made. So I edited the whole thing myself as well. I then just dropped everything in. So you've got this great bit of performance and then it goes to grainy black and white. That's where I hadn't found the shot in the life thing. So, yeah, it's just being 21. You can just do anything. Yeah, how fantastic. Oh, how liberating. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Amazing, yeah. So um, nowadays, would you describe yourself as a director, filmmaker, and a photographer then? I think so. I, th I think things are just changing so rapidly. I know that um, at the time when the 5D came out, Everyone was talking about, you know, additional content, let's shoot that. I was very fortunate insofar that all of my photography, or 99% of it, is done with hot lights. I hate flash. I don't see the point of it. It takes so long to shape it, to make it look real. Um, so I always used hot lights, HMIs, Kinos, loads of grip and bounce. Um, so there was an easy transference in content provision by using the 5D, shoot on the Hasselblad, and then shoot some motion. Um, but then what really changed the whole thing for me was the whole market was then swamped by everyone doing this at the time, and they still do it now. You see it on all the lookbooks for Nike or whatever, yeah. and someone shoots a bit of 5D, and then it's a bit slow-mo, and, and you think, yeah, it looks really sweet, but it's just there's nothing to it. Mm. I wanted to do something more than that. So I'd shot a big set of pictures um, for Alan's now um, defunct um, fanzine called Dodgem Logic, and that was on uh, burlesque. 
And I did this shoot, and I went back to Alan, and I said, do you mind awfully, because he had featured in that, he'd been one of the characters in it, I said, do you mind doing it again, and, let, and this time let me film it as a 5D piece of sort of like nice imagery? And he said, well, why not write you a screenplay? And I said, well, it's got to have the clown in it, it's got to have this, and it's got to have that. And he said, well, leave it with me. Then he went and wrote Jimmy's End, um, which he thought would be a 10-minute film. Ended up being a half-an-hour film. Um, and it was at that point, that's where it changed from being sort of like a 5D merchant, you know, adding a bit of content into becoming a real director. Because when you're actually directing actors, and you have to understand the narrative, and you have to understand the whole way of putting a film together. You can't cross the line. You see the stuff that kids are shooting now. It just snaps, chuck it together, and it looks pretty. But no one's thinking about telling a story per se. There's no real narrative content there, I don't think. So I was very fortunate by having Alan on board, which then enabled us with our partners, because Alan and I had done a previous project called Unearthing with Lex Records. And Lex Records had then gone out and spoken to the Creators Project. Have you, have you heard of them? They're, they're a pretty cool, cool outfit. And they um, gave us 120 grand and said, go and make Jimmy's End, which is what we did. Um, so having made a film, a short film, I've now made five, which total up an hour and 20 minutes, that's why I use the phrase director, or the title director, because I think I've earned it, yeah. because it's a bloody hard job. Yeah. How How... How did you learn that then? Did anyone show you how to no, be a director? No, Because I've shot stills, as I'm sure you have on yes. the side of uh, moving image sets and advertising um, filming. And, uh, you know, it is another world, you know, um, and there's so much going on um, and it's like another language. So you must be inherently good at picking up things. I, I, do you know what? I, I don't really even know if that's true. Um I know what I want visually, so I already came with a very strong vision, right. and, and, that, and that's a really important part of it. But then actually directing the actors and having the shorthand with all the other key crew to make things happen, like you said, that, that's an important part of it. But I see the short films that I've made um, as, as basically a funded film degree plus, because we did, um, we did Act of Faith, which was the first one as such. That was a trailer, per se, for Jimmy's End. We did that to try and get the funding to come through. Um, and you look at that and you think, okay, there's some nice moments in it. And then you get to Jimmy's end and you think, oh, some really good moments in this. And then you get to his heavy heart and you think, okay, he's starting to figure out what he's doing now. And we've now picked up a, a proper multi-million dollar budget to make the, the feature film. Um, but I would never have, if someone had offered me that kind of money, well, they wouldn't, it just wouldn't have happened. You have to go through that process. So to answer your question, um, I now think that I'm sufficiently trained enough to actually take on those things through those years of experience. Um, but it is, isn't something that's inherent. You do learn it as you go, um, and it's a very frightening experience. I remember when I was sitting there with my producer at the time, and we were just about to start shooting, and he said, oh, this is um, Stephanie. She's your um, script supervisor. I said, well, what's a script supervisor? <laughs> and then you find you bloody well need a script supervisor because they've got to be telling you where, what line you finished on, what to pick up, where the hand was, what was on the table, and so many different things. So you go through that and you have a good first AD. I work with a guy called David Crabtree. They really sort of like get things going. So as the director, all you're really doing is concentrating on the performance. Right. That's the main thing. Yeah. 
And initially, when I was with the earlier films, I was getting too involved with the lighting, too involved with the camera, because um, I wasn't necessarily as happy with things as as I would be on a still shoot. Yeah. Um, but I've now learned you have to just back off from that. You have to just enable and empower all of the people to do their job, and you just concentrate on performance. There's enough people there to do the bits to leave you to concentrate on what you should be concentrating on. Well, exactly. You know, it's like on a, on a photo shoot, the photographic teams that I work with, I only work with serious people. Um, you know, we plot and plan everything down to its the nth degree. So on the day when you're shooting, it's seamless, and whatever sort of like problem is thrown at you, you can find a solution because that's what clients are paying for. They want solutions. They don't want someone saying, well, I don't know. Yeah. It's the last thing they want to hear. So I've taken all of those years of experience into the filmmaking. Now I surround myself with incredibly talented people and just concentrate on the actual talent and getting the performance. Great. Seems Sounds like it's working. Well, it is at the moment, touch wood. <laughs> it's great. Well, I wanted to talk about um, work, working with someone else, so working in this case with Alan, you know, and how, um, you, you know, uh, Photography, I think, can be quite isolating. I know at times, you know, I felt very much like little alone, poor old me, um, you know, uh, and uh, what, what, so, so what's it like working in a duo, you know, where, whether you where maybe from the point of view that you've got a bit more support or the point of view that it's a collaboration, you know, how, how did you first find that when you first started working together? Well, well to be honest, it, it, it wasn't that big a jump. So very much like you, um, I've always found photography quite a lonely business. The, the bigger the shoots that I started getting, it became less lonely because your first's always travelling with you, then your second, then your third, and you've got this collaborative team and you rely on people. And my argument has always been a good idea is a good idea. I have, don't care where it comes from if it's good. Obviously, later over dinner party, I'll take full credit for it. But the reality is it's a collaborative industry. Um, so when I was with Alan, I mean, it was just... It just blows your mind just through his, his creativity. What he doesn't do on the films is he doesn't get involved. So he writes the screenplay. We have loads and loads and loads of discussions about how we see it, how we would like it to actually form. But like he always describes himself as, an, as the architect, he will do the floor plan and then he leaves it to me to actually get on and build it, knowing that I then have to bring in all these different tradesmen to actually create the finished article, which he always finds slightly strange from a comics point of view. He writes every single bit of dialogue. He then does the scene descriptions. He then knows exactly what the artist is going to draw. So he knows what the finished thing is going to be look, going to look like. But going back to your question about working with another person, it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of liberating at times because it does take some pressure off of you, knowing that someone else is there to sort of like come up with some solutions rather than everything beyond your shoulders. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, I wanted to move on to um, to talking about some of your stills now, um, if that's okay. And um, you've shot an epic amount of key art stills. Um, I've, uh, I've, I know that from everything that I've seen of yours, and I've uh, looked at a lot of your work and know a lot of your work. Um, uh, how did that come about? You know, and I've put in my notes here that the US has plenty of key players here, which they do, don't they? I'm, oh, I'm sure, yeah. you know, we're familiar with the work of Art Stryber, Justin Stevens, Miller Mobley. People like this are, you know, busy doing key art in the US all the time. So um, uh, so you just sort of seem to go from shooting UK editorials straight sort of under their noses to shooting this key art. So can you talk a bit about how that happened? Well, how that happened, and you're right, that's exactly what happened. Um, 
I was shooting for the Times Saturday magazine, and I was shooting for them, I think, on and off for 20 years. Um, and I was one of their lead celebrity photographers. So I was doing the, you know, the Springsteens, the Bowies. I was just doing everyone. Um, and then Channel 5, a woman called Sally Leonard, she got in touch and she said, we've now, Channel 5, we've bought all the CSI franchise, House, Prison Break, um, and Law and Order. And we're looking for one photographer to shoot a big head portrait of all of the key talent. Um, and you're up against Martin Schuller. Um, I said, okay. So when did all the meetings, because um, Schuller already does the big head, but his is with Flash, slightly confrontational, slightly distorted. I was shooting all mine with Kino flows on 5.4, very flattering, um, but still quite iconic. Um, and also because they wanted some motion, we could just take the 5.4 camera out, put in the red, and shoot the, the motion. So I got the gig. Um, so I did that, and it was my house picture, the one of Hugh Laurie, which is a, a very iconic image. Yeah. And it was at the bottom of Tottenham Court Road. It was it was like a triple 96 sheet. It was just massive, and it was drawing a lot of attention. And then from there... I then changed agents, and then there was a small London agency that got the gig to rebrand um, the A&E network in America. It's a big thing. The Sopranos, it was everything. Um, and they asked me to do it because they'd seen that. But again, it was still very British because the head of the um, network was a British guy. He liked my visual sensibility. I got the gig. I spent a month in L.A., working on all of these shoots, shooting it all on 5.4, multi-move, stitching together everything to create these 96 sheets. Um, that's how I got in. And then from that point, the doors opened, Sky wanted me, everyone then was saying, oh, can you come do my show? And that was it, really. But you have to get in some way. And then the bigger the production you do, it's like with anything. So we did a shoot with the Vikings for History Channel, the budget on that was just shy of half a million dollars for the day. We had an 87-man crew. We got 20 by, 20 by 20 buys running down a beach on this lake up in the hills outside of Dublin, um, owned by the Guinness family, with 20K HMIs bouncing into these. And, you know, guys out on the lake with smoke machines, with, you know, Viking boats. So unless you've got that kind of picture, you're never going to get that picture. It's one of those chicken and egg things. Yeah. So I was very fortunate. I came in through editorial. Someone had seen my stuff in the Times magazine, gave me the Channel 5, then I got the A&E, and then so it progressed. Wow. That, that's amazing. And, and and talking about the Vikings key art then, was that um, you talk about 20 by 20s on the beach. Is that Was that just for the stills element? That was just for me doing stills. Wow. So we spent, yeah, just under half a million dollars for a one-day still shoot. Mind-blowing. I mean, it really is. I was talking to the guy, I forget how his name escapes me now, the guy who directed Rogue One. Um, it's a lovely chap. He's best mates with my editor, who also edited Rogue One. And we were talking after we'd done a screening of the films at the Barbican. And he said, how much are these, these still shoots? And I said, half a million. And he goes, for a still shoot? He goes, that's the budget for Star Wars per day. Wow. So they spend half a million on a multi-billion pound film. Um, and that's for a still shoot. 
So it kind of puts into perspective, you know. It really does, it's, doesn't it? It's a privileged position to be in. Absolutely, yeah. And, and in fact, I've got, uh, I wanted to ask you about the Vikings key art. You know, I, I, um, I'd love you to tell me how you put blood in the water on the Vikings pictures. Uh, and, um, and, and also, uh, how did you learn to do these epic comp shots, getting all the atmosphere and the perspective correct? I looked at the Vikings uh, campaign last night and um, there's so much depth to those pictures. So how, how there's you... only one comp in there. Is there? There's only one comp. The one comp is the one when the when the boat is on the on the beach and you've got a guy hanging off of it. Everyone's in place apart from one guy, which we then comped in. Everything else is in camera. It doesn't look like it, but it's all in bloody camera. Amazing. So, but with the other comps, um, but oh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. But the blood in the water, we actually had. Loads and loads of fake blood, which we put in, and then my retoucher Paul Norman, he um, he's just I've been working with him for ten years. He then obviously keyed onto that red that was there, and then brought it up a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, no, we were pouring in gallons of this stuff. Yeah. yeah. What about what about building those comps? My uh, you know my my limit of, of a comp is to mark four black squares on the. Uh, for, Four black crosses on the floor and uh, shoot people standing on the crosses. That's about as uh, that's about as involved as I get. But I look at something like Vikings and there's this, yeah, there's a lot of depth and there's so, there seems to be so much depth within the picture. You know, well, all of the comps we do. I mean, if you're doing, I've just come back from doing uh, one over in in Brussels. We've just been shooting Le Mis for the BBC, which is um, just a drama, no singing, thankfully. Um, but we've just done big comp for them. So there, there, there are several ways of doing comps. The, the, the easy, not the easiest way, but one of the ways is to go and shoot all of your back plates. And I did that as a shot on my, in my um, website, which is like a period drama. You've got all of these different interactions with everyone. And that was supposed to be for the BBC initially. So I'd gone to the back lot and I'd, I'd mark up a big bit of string and you shoot every single section, maybe 50 camera moves. So there's no convergence. And then you put them all together, and then you put an assistant in, and you see exactly where the light is falling. Then you go in the studio, and you replicate exactly where the light is, and you've measured all the distances. So we have notebooks full. So that's how you do the sort of like the, the big outside with the studio to be put on the background. But what we were doing for the BBC, we were just shooting all different people across the course of an afternoon in situ which is a much easier thing apart from when the bloody sun goes in and then you've got, then got to get the HMIs out to bounce <laughs> in to try and replicate where it was an hour ago. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's just, it is painting by numbers to an extent, the big mm. comps. Um, and do you enjoy them? Um, probably not. Yeah, enjoy is the wrong word. That's more of a technical procedure. When you're actually directing the talent to get the performance, that's the fun bit. Doing all of the elements, that is, it's just painting my numbers. You have to do it. And then you do so many passes with and without smoke, different exposures, just to give the um, the retoucher all of the assets. Um, so that, it's really, really uh, rewarding once it's all put together and you think, wow, that's seamless. Yeah. That looks as good as it's going to be. Yeah. Because um, you've thought about every aspect of it. But I get more, more enjoyment. I've just done a big shoot with... Um, History Channel for six, their Navy SEALs thing uh, with Olivia Munn. 
that was more rewarding because you are having to sort of like create these lit scenarios within minutes and move on and just that's a challenge so they're 14 hour days doing three days back to back by the end you're exhausted but that's the challenge that i really really like where you're actually shaping like creating a scenario um, and then getting some kind of performance out of that actor so that's the real challenge and that's um that's the most rewarding part of it mm. just jumping back to uh, you said uh, um earlier on about uh, how you just use hot lights um uh, rather than having flash. to ra- rather than having to shape things with flash what why 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 is that what, not why is it but why do you do that because someone must have told you back when you were in your 20s to do that it's quite you mentioned I've never flags assisted. and Oh right. Okay. So I've never assisted, which is which has been in some ways the bane of my life, insofar that I've had to teach myself everything. So it has taken decades to actually teach yourself everything. Um, whereas my assistants now, um, you know, don't get me wrong, we've collaborated and we've worked together. We've worked through these problems, so they have been part of that process with me. But they are just so lucky insofar as they are now completely and utterly au fait with how to create this light, how to create that light, um, and just talented individuals in themselves because they've just gone from zero to hero so fast. It's taken me so bloody long. (laughs) So you just picked up Kinoflow, did you, not knowing what they were and thought, I'll give this a go? No, I was very, very fortunate. I had an assistant, and he changed everything for me, a guy called Simon, and he must have been 15, 20 years ago. Um, and I'd never shot five forks. I'd never gone to college. So, you know, newspapers and magazines, it's not really something people do. Um, so he was on a shoot with me and we was, we just picked up a big campaign for Lyle and Scott. I don't know how we got it, but I did. I just won this campaign. And, um, and he said, Mitch, it'd be great to shoot this on five four. And I said, well, I've never used one. He said, I think it'd be good. I think you'd love it. So we're using a PN10 clearing tank, using Type 55 Polaroid, using this Wister camera. And I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm knocking the bellows all over the place. M- movements are everywhere. Pictures are amazing because, again, <laughs> I haven't been formally trained on it. And then he said, I'll tell you what, he goes, I saw one of these bloody lights on a film set. It's called a Kino Flow. And he goes, it looked really good. And I said, you know how it works? And he said, well, we're just going to plug it in. So... We rented a couple in, plugged them in. I started playing, and then I got my signature, the Mitch Jenkins big head look, um, which I've lived on that one for years. You know, everyone wants that. Mm. I mean, in addition to everything else, well, can we have one of those big heads? So you do the big <laughs> head, you know, like the Martin Schuller, but without the distortion. Yeah. Um, so, again, you know, it's just coming across these things. Um, and also working on these sets. So I learned something the other day that was just wonderful. So we were shooting Olivia Munn. Um, in a doorway to a huge aircraft hangar, and we had minutes with her, um, which is always a pain when you're doing key art. You have minutes you really want longer. Um, and I got a 12, it wasn't a 20K, it was an 18K, 18K tungsten's up, and we're bouncing it off of a 20 by, and I'm thinking, and mixing everything, it's just not looking right. It's not just, it just looks too lit. I don't want it to look lit. And this old gaffer walks along. He isn't even a gaffer anymore. He's just doing the um, cable bashing. And he just must have been in his 60s, 70s. And he just said, need to bookend that. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I said, well, it's silk. And he said, yeah, just bookend it. Bring the silk in. 
I had a silk on standby and we brought it in. We bookended the silk with the um, Ultra Bounce and the 18K and it was like, fuck, that's brilliant. That is just <laughs> so simple, which I'd never done. You know, I'd bounced through a silk and all the rest, but to bookend the thing and put it at an angle and all of a sudden just that one tweak, which I hadn't thought to do. And so I'm excited by the whole process. Things like that excite me. Mm. Yeah. Ridiculous, isn't it? Amazing. No, yeah. no, it's fantastic. It's great to know you're still learning. You know? Oh, geez, yeah. You learn on every shoot, every shoot. If you're not learning, then it does become a little bit tedious. Yeah. Um, and lastly, on a technical note, just on that bit, um, so if you're you're able to manipulate the depth on 5.4, because Kino is obviously not giving you much light. So no. how are you coping? Or if you're shooting on Hasselblad, how are you coping with the limited amount of light from Kinoflow? Well, I've stopped doing both of those cameras now. Right. Um, but when I was shooting it, so when we were shooting the big head campaign that started everything, you're shooting on 400 ASA Portra. You can't push that really, so you're on 400 Portra. Um, we would shoot at 125, at 5.6, on a huge rigid tripod. I'd have one assistant on the lens, one assistant on the um, on the film, and I'd be, like, focusing. You'd focus, you'd focus, and then you'd just be saying, hold, 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 click, thank you. Next one. And that's how you did it. Now I shoot it, I tend to shoot on the 810 or now the 850, the Nikon. Um just because you've got multi-point bloody focus, Hasselblad's true focus and all the rest of it, it's just a pain in the ass. I don't even use my Hasselblad anymore, it's, which is a real shame because the glass is obviously beautiful. Um, I only went digital about eight years ago. Anyway, so, um, but no, I'd use a Nikon. You get enough quality out of that for your key art? Yes, you? more than enough, more than enough. I know I'm, you know, when my assistant, Leo, he just said, you know, Mitch, you know, try the Nikon. You know, because I was having real problems with a Hasselblad, you know, when you want to shoot with minimum depth. Um, and it just, you're getting so many duffs. And when you've got limited time with the talent, you really can't do that. And the worst thing is when a client goes, oh, I love that expression. And I'll say, well, it's not quite sharp. We don't care. I'm saying, well, I care. Because, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. It's always going to be an out-of-focus picture. Um, although that seems very fashionable nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, no, shoot it all on the Nikon. Interesting. Yeah. Amazing. Um, from the lost key art, um, which was so memorable, through to the portraits of Judy Dench and Ricky Gervais, there's something really captivating about your images. I wanted to ask you, what happens at that moment that you're about to press the, the shutter? Do you say anything? Um, do, you, do you use your own little code for putting them at ease? No. Well, I, I, I suppose we all do as photographers. We all have our banter. And unless you're photographing someone for the second time, all your little stories, all of your little phrases, all of your like, oh, yeah, love it, love it, oh, just a Nats cock, darling, just a Nats cock, just that, oh, yeah, and all of that kind of stuff is fresh and new to them. The assistants behind me are just rolling their eyes because they have heard the story, you know, and says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel a bit uncomfortable. Don't worry, it's my first job. <laughs> you know, and, you, and it's just all of these, you get a little laugh and they yeah. feel more comfortable and the assistants want to shoot themselves because they've heard it so many times. So, yeah, we all have those little things. We do, things. yeah. yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going a slight shade of beetroot sitting here myself, thinking yeah. of uh, my own poor assistant. Um, um, and do you think you know when you've got the shot? I'm talking about an in, quite an intimate moment now when you're right in there. Do you think you know when you've got it? Not quite. Well, you do because you've got the bloody screen there, um, which I don't like. Um 
I, I come from a film background. So, you know, I'd shoot Pentax 6, 7, I'd have 10 frames. And you shoot them on 5, 4, you know, you maybe get 10 shots off if you're lucky on a session. Um, and you'd know you'd got it. Um, I don't know. You, you do know. But also what I don't like doing, and the one thing about digital that I really, really find slightly annoying is when the clients say, oh, yeah, just, just do some more, do some more. And you know you've got it. And all you're doing is boring the talent because they know yeah, they've given it. They do. You know, and I'll just say, no, no, actually, guys, we do have this. Yeah. Um, and you can see the look of relief in the talent's eyes. Just like, thank God for that. You're on my side. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think that's a really important thing. Obviously, you know, the client is the client. They're paying the bills. But you do need to have talent on your side. And, and they need to trust you. That's the important thing. I never ask anyone to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. So I'm not really a comedic photographer because I just, the idea of asking people to do really stupid things doesn't appeal to me because no. if someone asked me to do it, it'd be like, no. Yeah. You know, what's the justification? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, how, how do you see the industry changing in the next five years or even five to 10? And, and, and do, you, do you think your competition is different now, you know, with the advent of Instagram and things like that and just the way that the general market and everything is? What do you think about that? Um, I think general advertising in the UK has changed massively. Um, it's less conceptual. It's more, I think, what happened when we had the, the last recession um, and austerity came in, advertising agencies had to stop the big glitzy thing because it wasn't about that anymore. It was about how are we going to get by? You know, this is wholesome, organic kind of living. We're all in it together, which was obviously bullshit, but that's what they wanted to portray. And then you had at the same time, the whole Instagram world coming along, just snaps, which is all they are. There's no composition invariably. Um, but that seemed in some ways to become the emperor's new clothes. Um, so from that point of view, I think it is changing. If you look at you look at most adverts now, they're usually shot at about F8. You know, there's not much composition to it. You know, there's not a great deal to it. There's no yeah. no classic thought process going to it. But I think photography has just changed. People don't shoot on film. There, there isn't that. There isn't that. And what's the word I'm looking for? You know, when you're actually shooting on film, when I shoot tranny, you know, I would push or pull by a quarter or third of a stop, you know, you'd reverse clip test the film because you know you've got a good one at the, at the, the end or whatever. So, you, you know, you're doing all of these things. Oh, no, just push that half a stop or a quarter. Um, you had to meter everything. You had to think about everything. Whereas now it's like, oh, shoot it, oh, fix it in post, yeah. which, is, which has enabled people without any formal training or understanding of the medium to, to work within the industry. I don't think there's any longevity for them, ultimately, because the next phase or next fad will come along. Mm. I don't think Instagram's helped. I think it's all... I mean, I love Instagram. I really do. I find it's a good resource. There are some great images. Constantly click, yeah, I'll save that one, like that idea. But in general, it's, it's kind of bogus. I was just reading the other day, the ad agencies now are putting more research into, so when someone's an Instagram photographer or even a successful photographer with their Instagram account, most of these people are bots. They aren't actual followers. 
So, and they're finding that most of the, um, the not most, but a lot of the celebrities, certainly the B-listers, um, you know, they're now a, you know, social influencer, um, if the word is, um, that their followers aren't true followers. They're buying followers. Um, so, I don't know. It's a, it's a higgledy-piggledy world. Whereas, yeah. my, whereas the industry that I work in it is about much more controlled photography. Mm. And um, do you think do you see that as being quite constant in the next five years? Do you think? Yeah, do you think well, I mean, co- when content content is king. I mean, you know, is it, um, Netflix are going to spend five billion this year on on content. They have to shoot posters for it. Yeah. They have to shoot so many different um, images that are needed to promote them in all the different territories. So no, there's. There's a constant market for that. I just wanted to talk about agents for a moment now. Um, how how important are agents to your business? Um, as a lot of people seem to think that agents don't do too much. Um, I mean, I, I don't have an agent I have had in the past, but now I just have two producers who work with me, which works a lot better for me. Um, but I can see you're so, now solely with art department in the US. Are they fairly active or do sometimes months go by without them calling you? So art department are excellent. I get I get a lot of work through them. I speak to Nell Murray on a regular basis, probably I know a couple of times a month in person, but we'll be emailing, you know, a couple of times a week. So they work for me. She's brilliant. She has always been brilliant. Um, I'm not the most proactive individual. You get to a certain point in your career where you have you've done all of the knocking on doors, you've gone and shown your portfolio, you've done all of that stuff. So I'm only really interested in doing meetings with serious people if they've got if they've got something to talk about, yeah. as opposed to going there or oh, let me show you my portfolio. Um, that's I'd like to think that that's something that I don't really need to do anymore. So if someone wants my work, then they'll bring me up and we'll have a conversation. Um, but getting the book under people's noses, making people aware of you that that is an agent's job, yeah. and she feels very comfortable doing that, whereas I don't. And do you, like, emotionally, how, does that all sit well with you? Like, by that I mean, you know, do you do you have kind of good weeks and bad weeks, good days and bad days? Sometimes you're just getting back off a flight from LA from shooting some epic key art and you're a bit broken but you're loaded and you go and, you know, uh, chill out at home for five days. And then are there other times where you're, you know, you were down to the last two and it didn't happen and then you're kind of kicking around a bit and you're a bit... That, I mean, that has just literally happened. We literally, it was a huge worldwide campaign and me and my producers, um, both in Spain where we were going to shoot it and um, in London and my New York agent, we spent two weeks. You know, the treatment was just exquisite. You know, I had my designers working on that. So everything was... It was the best treatment I'd ever done. Um, and we got down, it was down to the last two. I was best suited for the job by a country mile. But it went to the photographer who the creative director had worked with before. And uh, even though he felt that my work was maybe more appropriate, he hadn't worked with me and he wanted someone he'd worked with. So that can become a real pain in the ass because for everyone involved and I generally feel more sorry for the likes of my agent, for the likes of my producers, who have put in a two-week shift, mm. you know, re-budgeting, re-costing, you know, they want this kind of usage, that kind of usage, that kind of ethnic group. You know what it's like. It's a, it's a big, big job. Um, so I'm literally on the back of one of those at the moment, um, 
you cope okay with it? Um, I do now. Years gone by, I would be, I take it personally, it would just be debilitating. You just think, my God, really? Gone through all of that, you know, and that would have really solved loads of problems, you know, wouldn't have had to work for the next six months type of thing. Um, but now I don't. I mean, Waldo Barker, who's at my old agent, and he's just this, he's an amazing chap, and he's, he really is. And he, um, a dear friend, like we'd been together for 10 years as well, he always, he always said, Mitch, he goes, don't believe a word until you see a PO. And he goes, until there's a PO on the table, it's meaningless. And he's right. So I don't get excited about things. So when someone says, oh, this could be happening, it's like, that's great. And then I don't really pay it much attention again. Right. And, and then having lost this one, like I said, I felt really upset for all the people who had been involved because they'd actually done real work on it. Um, but now you just move on to the next thing. Yeah. And, you know, I've been doing this for such a long time. There is always a next thing. It doesn't just stop. You fall in and out of favour with people. That happens so many times. And you'll be thinking, well, I've worked solidly for you for a year. Why am I not working anymore? And then your agent will say, well, you know, they just, they're just trying someone else out. It's the way of the world. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. I took reasonably well with it. That's good. That's good. Do you, do you ever, do you ever, is there a tiny bit of you that hankers back to someone ringing tomorrow and saying, oh, are you free on Tuesday to do a uh, two-hour portrait against Grey Calorama in central London? Good God, no. Not in the slightest. I hate, I absolutely hate last-minute jobs. I mean, every now and again, you have to jump on a plane and go and do one. But I really hate them. I like to think about it. I like to really understand what I'm going to do, understand the space that I'm going to work in, talk to the producer on the ground, make sure the lighting kit is done. My assistants have gone over everything. We know we're covered. This is what we're going to produce. Here are the mood boards. Understand everything. So when you turn up, you're ready to go and you're ready to cover every eventuality. I don't like those lastminute.com things. In fact, I turn them down. It's like, yes, yeah, just, I'm busy. Yeah. Um, Are you quite meticulous in other areas of your life, you know, to, to, in terms of planning? Um, no. Well, apart from going on holiday, then I, then I plan that within an inch of its bloody life. <laughs> um, no, not quite. I'm very punctual, incredibly punctual. My son plays, he's a very, really very good sportsman, plays very high level. Um, so everything's organised for him and I bring that into it. My daughter's now a producer. Um, so I'm always helping those guys out. But no, my my home life, my house always looks like it's been burgled. I've got four children. I'm not that, but when I work, I like everything absolutely perfect. At the moment, we're working on the feature film and I've just storyboarded so 822 panels and I having them realised and I'm having an animatic made. So before we even start talking to heads of department, I want to know what the film's even going to look like so I can choose the right person to do the... So I am meticulous on that. Yeah. Wow. Um, do you consciously divide your time between moving image and still? So you just mentioned just doing the, the planning there. How do you divvy your time? I, do you, you have to prioritise a still shoot if it comes in? Yes. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, because in the past, much to my wife's complete and utter sort of like, she's just been freaked out just how an idiot I've been. I put my career massively on hold when I was doing the shorts. I was mean, focused on that. 
did nothing. Um, I was surprised it was a career to go back to, to be honest, because I involved myself so much. Um, but now still shoots take a priority because they pay the bills. Uh, the feature film's different. There, there's actually money involved in that. So I will, I'll get paid a director's fee. But the, um, but still, still take priority um, because that, that's what pays the bills. Yeah. And that's something I can't let go of because I'm still passionate about taking photographs. Yeah, yeah. And you travel a lot, and I put lot in capitals. <laughs> do, you, do you enjoy that side of the job? Um, and do you have any sort of flying or travel rituals to minimise the effects of jet lag? And- um, well, jet lag, yes. So if I'm shooting in L.A., you know that you're not going to be there for more than five days. Then you get in, go to bed reasonably early. I always wake up at four o'clock, whatever time. So if I go to bed at midnight, keep myself awake, I'll wake up at four o'clock. Simple as that. And by 6.30 in the evening, seven o'clock, I'll be ready for bed. So I tend to stay as close to UK time as possible, just so when I get back, if the jet lag isn't that, isn't that bad, and if I go to New York, I never get the nighttime flight. I'll always get the 8.30 uh, JFK in the morning. So you're on a daylight flight. So you've had a night's sleep, you're on a daylight flight, get off at 7.30 at night, go home, go to bed. And then you get through it on that one. Um, but no, I love traveling. I, abs- I absolutely adore it. It's a, I mean, that is the joy of this job. It, it, it is just a ridiculous privilege that someone has paid for me to go all around the world and in most cases stay in very nice hotels and, you know, in most cases fly business class. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm very, very thankful for the whole thing. But, yeah, I love travelling. Great. Do you have any quotes that you live by? None whatsoever. No. None whatsoever, no. I just just get on with it. (laughs) What's next for you? Um, How long will you be doing what you're doing, do you think? And are you happy? Am I happy? Um, am I happy? Yes, and no, I am happy. Um, I get frustrated by situations. But at the moment, I've got the feature film, which we start in November. Um, I'm talking with a new agent at the moment in London. Let me see what's going with that. I want to find the – I know the person I want to go with. Um, we're having a conversation. Um, we're just sort of flirting at the moment. Um so I'll get that to one side, but at the moment, all of my, all of my effort and everything is on the film. That that's it at the moment, and I know that I'm going to be on a complete downer when it's finished because making a film, I've done shorts, and that is just it blows you away. Just 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 the adrenaline of making it, and then all the work afterwards in post. So the idea of making a feature film, I'm so excited. How does that get into your head, that feature film? Um, it, it, this might sound a bit funny, but if you imagine photography to be 2D, not in the literal sense, yeah. but then film in my head is therefore 3D and you've got this extra dimension. Um, how do you cope with all that? And how do, you, how do you cope with being directing on the set and then being right in on the edit? It, it all just comes quite naturally to you. Um, yeah, do you know what? It has. It really, really has, um, and it is, and I've been incredibly fortunate, and it's maybe in part for, you know, the tiny reputation that I've built over the years, but when you put it up against Alan's reputation, so the people who have wanted to work with us have all been huge Alan Moore fans, 
Um, I mean, Colin Gowdy, for God's sake, you know, he just directed, um, just edited Rogue One. He's just moving. The next film he's doing, I think, is an 80, 90 million. It's Gareth Edwards. That was who who did it um, with Gareth. And it's so just having the opportunity to work with amazing people. We work with Ricky Ayers, the production designer, and just so many brilliant people. Um, I've been very, very fortunate. But it is, it's that additional space that you have in the film. So, you know, you're, you're thinking about it, and then me and Alan are thinking, well, what's this going to sound like? And then he's written the lyrics to every song that you'll hear on the radio. So we then got our musicians in America, Adam and Andy, who will then write a pastiche musically of the song that Alan's used as a bass and then written these new lyrics. And then they'll get in these great vocalists and it would just mean, you know, Tom York's been mentioned for one of the tracks and one of the songs in the radio in the film. And it's just all of these different layers. And as the director, that is just the most wonderful job because you are orchestrating all of these different parts, you know, obviously with all these amazing people around you, but then you just slot it all together. So, no, it's it's just overwhelming and wonderful. Oh, great. And um, what does your... What does your what does an average Mitch Jenkins day look like? Oh, well, it depends. Up until recently, it was every morning at the gym. As you can see, I've literally let that slide over the last four or five months because of the film. Um, but it, it's getting up, dealing with the kids in the morning when I'm at home. So getting over and off to school, sorting everything out, doing the school run, and then it's back into my office. Um, and I like to work early, so I usually get up really early, say five, six. So I'll go into the office first, then do the kids, then back to the office. And I'll work through until about midday, and then I'm bored. It's kind of done. I've done six hours, uh, and, and that's enough. Um, and that's why I like agents, because you know that when you've done your six hours, there's always someone out there setting you on your bar, you know, out on your behalf. Um, and then after that, it's, I don't know, Hanging out with people, just come back from a spa with a friend of mine who's motor racing. So we spent a week in a motorhome with a bunch of sweaty middle-aged blokes, which was an experience. Um, I don't know, it's a lot of my time is actually spent with my kids. Um, certainly my son, he plays rugby and cricket at a very high level. So going around the country with him. So, yeah. But then when I'm working, I'm working. And that's it. I'm gone. Right, yeah. Where can people find out about you? Uh, well, it's MitchJenkins.com, and the only social media I use is Mitch J. Jenkins, um, which is really just a personal one. Um, quite a few of my mates have got, like, got a so-and-so official and all the rest of it. And, yeah, that's great, you know. But I don't know, if you want to look at my pictures, go to the website. Um, Instagram's a fun thing. I like that. And uh, so that's where you can get me. Great. Oh, well, Mitch, it's been really fascinating. It's been really enjoyable to sit here and, uh, and chat to you about everything. Uh, thanks so much, Mitch. And I really look forward to, um, to the film coming out. Thanks so much, Dan. Cheers, bud.